In this time of global pandemic, I've often heard the phrase, and I'm sure you have too, we're all in this together. It's a word we often hear, a phrase we often hear, but let me ask the question, are we really all together? It seems to me that there's an expression in human solidarity. It sounds good, but are we really all together? Now, now we've seen moments of togetherness, haven't we? We've seen sacrifice in our heroes. We've seen also incivility, and we've seen polarization, and yes, in an election year, lots of politics. We live in a time of tolerance, and it's one of our highest cultural values. Yet ironically, our culture has a stubborn way of seeing the world through a binary us versus them lens. Now, despite all our talk of tolerance, we are often isolated, aren't we? We're insulated from many others, others who are very different than us, economically, generationally, ethnically, and educationally. Now, as Christians, we are called to love our neighbors. I don't think that's a surprise for most of us. And we're called to love those who we don't really even like, or maybe who don't even like us. I maybe have neighbors like that. And we're called to love our enemies. But what, what does this really mean for you and me in this Monday world we occupy? What does neighborly love look like on the very rugged road of our Monday lives? Now, Jesus gives a very challenging answer to that question. And if you have a Bible handy, grab it and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's in the New Testament, Luke chapter 10. Now, as a church family, we're exploring the amazing parables of Jesus. And I want to just remind all of us that parables are a different genre because parables are not strung together in logic. They're kind of like a picture. Imagine going to a museum and that picture grabs you. It forces you to ponder its multiple layers of meaning. And that's true of parables. The finest Luke scholar, in my opinion, is Kenneth Bailey. And this is how he describes this world we are entering into today, parables. He says, a parable is an extended metaphor, and as such, it is not a delivery system for an idea. And I like this, but a house in which the reader, the listener, you and me, are invited to take up residence. Now, the parable we're going to ponder today is no stranger to any of us, I'm sure of that. But think with me for just a moment, would you? I mean, think about this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told this story. Yet we still speak across many cultures in the train of time about good Samaritans, right? People who stop and help a neighbor in need. And we have in our laws, good Samaritan laws. Is this amazing? Now, this parable, this story of the good Samaritan may seem very familiar, but I want to suggest to you it's probably one of the least understood and at least for me, and maybe for you, the least applied to our lives. Now, the Good Samaritan parable must be seen for us to grasp the richness of its truths in its literary context, but it needs to also be seen against its cultural backdrop. So walk with me back in time for a moment. In the first century, the listeners to Jesus' story as he told it saw the world much like us through a binary us versus them lens. To the Jewish people he spoke to, there were two types of people in the world. There were God's chosen people and all the rest. Now, rather than that being a humbling reality, as it ought to be, it became a blinding, prideful thing for God's covenant people. Existentially, they began to feel this sense. Maybe you felt that. Like, we are better than them. We matter more than them. And God's covenant people knew 
God had instructed them very specifically to be a blessing to the nations, to care for the stranger, the orphan, the needy, to be proximate to others. But a distorted sense of purity before God somehow trumped proximity with others. And it was more than just, as we think of today, social distancing at six feet. It was social shunning worlds apart. Yet Jesus, in proclaiming the kingdom of God, boldly confronts this distortion. And I want you to notice as we look at this story that Jesus radically reframes neighborly love. Now here in verses 25 through 29 of Luke 10, the Good Samaritan story is prefaced by a dialogue. It's a dialogue that Jesus has with an Old Testament expert. The text calls him a lawyer, but he's, uh, he understands the Torah, the Old Testament text well. The conversation is two rabbis, and it's centered around one of the most important questions of all of our life. And that is, what is the good, true, and beautiful life, and how do we live it? The Old Testament scholar wraps together two Old Testament texts and frames it in what we often know as the, good, uh, or the great commandment. And that is found in two texts in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And Jesus, as he talks to this guy, he affirms this Old Testament scholar and says, that is it. You got it. And the idea is, now go live it. And as the reader of Luke, you'd expect the conversation to stop right there because it seems settled, doesn't it? But Luke surprises us in the next verse because we now know that the one questioning Jesus, this Old Testament scholar, there was something more lurking underneath his rabbinical dialogue, his question. And I want to suggest to you that what is going on is there is a heart problem at the heart of his problem of the Old Testament scholar. Now you will notice something very amazing. I would suggest that the question he asked Jesus, the surprising question, is one expresses disingenuousness. And let me just interject maybe a bit of snarkiness. It's the kind of question I think he said, like, who is my neighbor? Now, rather than answering this question, as I would want to do as a pastor, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly in some polemic. He simply tells a story. And this story is framed around two developments. First of all, he tells a shocking story. The story is shocking. And then in the midst of that shocking story, we will see a surprising hero. So Jesus tells a story that is shocking and a surprising hero. First, a shocking story. Now you'll notice if you have your Bible open that Jesus begins a story with a man, most likely Jewish, who's walking down the ancient road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a full day's journey. I've walked in that road many years ago. It's dry and dusty. It winds its way down through an ancient riverbed called a wadi, the Wadi Kelt. Makes its way down through a great traverse to the Dead Sea. And along the way, as the wadi drops, there are spaces when you hike along this ancient road that is dark um, and is protected by large rock outcroppings. Now, this was a dangerous place for a first century traveler. It was dark and it was steep and they were vulnerable. And it was at this place where thugs and robbers often lurked. I want us to know that this was not like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood on this day. On this particular day, it was anything but a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Quite the contrary. You'll notice Jesus very specifically describes as a traveler's ambush. He's robbed, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. 
Now, the Jewish religious leaders come by, don't they? Two of them, priest and Levite. They come down the same road. They see him lying there, but they walk by. Now, we want to know why. I mean, how could they ignore him and avoid him completely? And how could they be justified with such behavior? And Jesus does not tell us. He leaves us hanging with our mouths dropped open with curiosity and wonder. But Jesus does say something. He presents a shocking contrast to the neighborly love of a surprising hero. Jesus' focus now moves to the hero. This surprising hero, Jesus tells us, is a Samaritan who's traveling on this same road. He comes by and sees the man who's been robbed and beaten and left dead by the road. Who is this Samaritan? Now, Jesus' listeners knew exactly who he was. He wasn't a religious leader. Most likely, he was a business person. We know this because he's making his way down to Jericho. Jericho in the first century was on the ancient king's highway. It was a place of robust commerce in the uh, Arabian spice trade. So most likely, he was a business person, although Jesus would have mentioned him as a clergy person. What Jesus does explicitly say um, is that he reaches out to this guy. His listeners knew implicitly that Jews and Samaritans who lived, listen, right next door to each other, didn't have anything to do with each other. The Jews saw the Samaritans as racially inferior and religiously inferior. The gospel writer John explicitly tells us in his text, the Jews had no dealings. That means they had no dealings at all with Samaritans. Yet here is a Samaritan. Can you imagine a traveler, a business person, not a clergy person, who crosses all barriers of bigotry and injustice and prejudice to help a fellow human being who is a victim of economic injustice and thuggery violence? How can we explain this? And the key is in verse 8. Look with me. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, the original language of the Greek text that is translated into English compassion is the key to unlock the meaning of this entire story. It's a word rarely found in the New Testament, only four times. In fact, Jesus will use this very same word to describe that moment. Now, imagine that moment later in Luke 15 when, in another story of the parable of the prodigal sons, when the father sees the younger son come home, when he sees him from afar off, Jesus says he has compassion. Same Greek word. And this is important for us to understand that he sees his son through the lens of compassion. Here we have a word that captures the deep visceral love of a family member. It is a family familial attachment love for another. And using this word, both in Luke 15 and 10, Jesus is describing familial love. It is one that is directed not toward a family member, but a member of humanity. Through the story of the Good Samaritan, we must not miss the radical teaching of Jesus. Jesus radically reframes neighborly love as familial love. In other words, Jesus is widening the circle from an us versus them, tribal love, to include we are all in this together love of humanity. To the good heart and loving actions of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying this truth we must not miss in this text. We love God by loving our neighbor no matter who they are, no matter who they are. 
So who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The biblical text reminds us that a neighbor is a fellow image bearer of God. They are someone who is to be treated as we would a close family member who we cherish. A neighbor is not merely someone who lives next door to us, but they're any image bearer who has a need we can meet. In this shocking story with such a surprising hero, Jesus not only answers the explicit question, who is my neighbor, but often we miss in this story, Jesus addresses an implicit question that is at the very heart of this story. And that question is, what does neighborly love require? Now look with me at the tangible action of generosity the Samaritan exhibits in our story in verses 34 through 36. He immediately offers first aid. He puts the guy in his donkey or horse, takes him to an inn several uh, yards or almost maybe several miles down the road. What happens? He takes him to the inn, and most likely this Samaritan businessman knew the innkeeper. He had traveled this road many times before. And he pulls out his Visa card or American Express and he guarantees payment for this guy. He says, when I come back, I will be good for whatever he needs. This is stunning generosity for a complete stranger he had never met. Now notice, to understand this story, notice how it's framed. And this is what we often miss. Jesus frames this entire story in an economic context with a riveting economic contrast. The story begins with a victim of economic injustice, namely the robbers who take what is not rightfully theirs, right? The story ends just the opposite with the Samaritan who voluntarily gives up what is rightfully his in amazing generosity. And we must not miss the truth here that Jesus expresses about neighborly love. Neighborly love requires compassion, but it also requires capacity. For without the diligent labor of the Samaritan businessman, In a monetized wealth world that he had earned through his diligent labor, the Samaritan would not have had the economic capacity to care for a neighbor in need. Now, the heartfelt compassion of the Samaritan is rightfully on display here. It is. But we must not miss so is the capacity of his pocketbook. Both matter in this matter of neighborly love. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes the implications of the gospel's transformation of our economic lives, particularly as it relates to neighborly love and heartfelt compassion and capacity. Listen to Ephesians 4.28, which I think is a midrash or a commentary, actually, of the Good Samaritan story. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share, notice, with anyone in need. The gospel not only profoundly shapes our understanding of everyday work, it also speaks to the importance of our work in loving our neighbor rightly. And if you've not read our book, The Economics of Neighborly Love, you can read more of the full understanding of that. And let's not forget that in his story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus ultimately points to himself, doesn't he? That Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan to us, who has demonstrated both compassion and capacity to lay his sinless life down as an atoning sacrifice for you and me. So let me ask you, have you, in repentance and faith, placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the ultimate Good Samaritan? When we experience Christ's love for us, we can love others as Christ loved them. Now, during this time of pandemic, many of us have been getting to know our neighbors better, uh, neighbors who live near us. And this is a really good thing. And as we reflect on Jesus' teaching here, we want to apply it to our immediate lives. I'm going to pose two 
questions, diagnostic questions for you to reflect on this week. First, how are you seeing your neighbor? And secondly, how are you serving them? How are you seeing them and how are you serving them? First, how are you seeing your neighbor? Jesus calls us and empowers us to love our neighbors differently, radically differently. This means we must first see them as Jesus sees them. That means for me and for you, looking past their shortcomings, their insensitivities, their failures, their problems, and seeing them as unimaginably precious as image bearers of God. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant work, The Weight of Glory, puts it better than anyone I know. It's a little longer quote. I want you to listen to it carefully. He writes, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. Now listen how Lewis progresses. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations, these are mortal, and their life to ours is the life of a gnat but it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Think with me for a moment of a neighbor. Who is that neighbor who is hard for you to love? How are you seeing them? Are you seeing them as God sees them? And if we see them as God sees them, we will love them no matter who they are. Now, let me say, loving our neighbor does not mean we agree with everything they believe and do. It doesn't mean we stop discerning good and evil. It doesn't mean that every human being eventually will have the same eternal destiny. But it does mean this, that we love God by loving our neighbor no matter who they are. As followers of Jesus, we are commissioned to love our enemies, to seek the best for them, to sacrifice for them. Let's remember, our ultimate enemy does not have flesh and blood, but is a spiritual being, the evil one. How are you seeing your neighbor? Secondly, how are you serving your neighbor? The primary way we serve our neighbor is in and through both the paid and unpaid work we do every day. It is through the work that we create value that meets the needs, very real needs of our neighbors, both near and far. And one of the good things coming out of this pandemic to me is that we are now seeing the importance of everyday work of truckers, of grocery store workers, of clerks, of meat packers, of healthcare workers what neighborly love they are exhibiting to all of us, what unlikely heroes they are, but heroes they are. And because of the global pandemic, the economic landscape has dramatically changed and will change for many in the days ahead. So how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond individually and collectively to those who lose jobs, who have been economically beaten down, left by the road, and increasingly vulnerable? As apprentices of Jesus, we have a wonderful opportunity now to show neighborly love to others through our generosity. Let me suggest four things for you to consider about what that might mean. First, now is the time to be even more generous in your giving to the local church family. Because of economic disruption, we have an increasing number of benevolence needs. For that reason, Liz and I have increased our own giving to Christ's community. Make your generosity a priority with your local church. Secondly, though, Consider increasing your giving to one of our current ministry partners or working in our city with the most vulnerable, and there are many of them. 
You can look them up on our website. You could also volunteer at a food pantry and support harvesters with a financial gift. More of our city are increasingly food insecure. And in a nation with so much abundance, y'all, no fellow image bearer of God should ever go to bed hungry in our congregation, in our community, our city, and our nation. No one. And we can do something about that. Third, if you're not part of Care Portal, I would encourage you to sign up. It is a great way for families and singles to meet very practical needs of other family members in our community who are really struggling. Liz and I recently uh, had just the joy, we love Care Portal in our life, but we had the joy of helping a single mom cover her rent for a month. What a joy that was. Fourth, make it a point to support local businesses. Many businesses around us, many of your neighbors, many of my neighbors, are suffering greatly because of this economic shutdown. Let me ask, what if everyone at Christ Community would, every Tuesday, order a takeout meal? We could call it Takeout Tuesdays, or I don't know, Takeout Fridays. That would make a big difference, especially for some of our restaurant owners and employees. So let's be creative in our generosity. I know families in our church who receive the stimulus check and instead of spending it on themselves, they use it to help out another family in our church that was struggling financially and someone who had lost a job. How I love hearing stories like that. Yes, these are hard times, but they are amazing times where neighborly love has never spoken more loudly to those around us. To the beauty and goodness of our Lord and his church, so may we be the heart, may we be the hands of Jesus. And if we are, I have a hunch, it's just a hunch, that even in this COVID-19 world, it will be a beautiful day in the neighborhood.